Good morning. This summer we've been going through the Psalms and through the steps of the rabbi. Today we finish up the Psalms with Psalm 139. And next week we'll begin our fall series on 1 Samuel. Um, So the growth groups can start this week or next week or sometime in the near future. If you're not in a growth group, uh, I suggest you look at signing up for one because they're great. It's a great way to study with folks and fellowship and worship together. So, um, so, but that's all next week. In the meantime, it's great to finish the summer in the Psalms, isn't it? I want to read you something uh, nice. You can be what you want to be. There is inside you all of the potential to be whatever you want to be, all of the energy to do whatever you want to do. Imagine yourself as you would like to be, doing what you want to do, and each day take one step towards your dream. And though at times it may seem too difficult to continue, hold on to your dream. One morning you will awake to find that you are the person you dreamed of, doing what you wanted to do simply because you had the courage to believe in your potential and hold on to your dream. And we've all heard things like, follow your dreams and follow your heart and you are free to be whoever you want to be and you can do what you want to do. This I am going to call for the purposes of this morning, the language and culture of self-actualization. All of our self-actualization language, I think, is the result of a Nietzschean worldview based on the work of 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who says we are totally free actors We are unbound by God, by morality, by truth. We are limited only by ourselves and the things we choose to claim and make true about ourselves. Truth is what we make it. Goodness is whatever I call goodness. I am whoever I choose to be. This means that I am unknowable even to myself and that I can create myself. For Nietzsche, this meant that we should choose power over others. He said that we should exert our will to power by trampling on the weak and manipulating others for our own gain. We see that today many people basically live as though Nietzsche were right. Politicians, lobbyists, and marketers manipulate truth and data in order to convince people to do as they want them to do. Cable news channels give us only half the information to tickle our ears, to incite us, and to keep us watching. Lawyers manipulate reality to get a verdict that favors them. Preachers manipulate the scriptures to coerce their congregations to give more money or follow their agendas. You and I manipulate people, treat them as means to our own ends. We do this at work in our families. I'm finding that it's hard to instill godly character in my children. It's much easier to just manipulate them because I'm bigger and stronger than they are. I can exert my will to power over their actions, and that's much easier than training them to live in godliness. This attitude is the result of a Nietzschean worldview that God is dead, and I can be and do whatever benefits me. I can be like God. So this is the situation of our world. You can be who you want to be, do what you want to do, follow your dreams, your heart, your stomach, or whatever organ seems best in the moment. You can self-actualize. You are unlimited, free. The world is your oyster. Life is yours for the taking. Insert whatever other graduation speech cliche you can think of. You can do whatever you want because God is dead. Or if there is a God, that God doesn't know or care about you. 
God is dead, so you can be like God. We live in a world where safe-sounding language obscures the fact that I think Nietzsche is the dominant philosopher of our day. Against the language of our culture, of self-actualization, let's look at Psalm 139, which we've heard read, where God is alive and active. He knows us. He sees us. He created us. And he has a way set out for us. Before we look at the psalm, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you know us, that you love us, that you created us. Thank you for your word to us this morning through David in this psalm. And we thank you that you proved your love to us when you sent your son to die for our behalf, on our behalf. We thank you for this time this morning and I pray that you would allow us to allow me to say and all of us to hear exactly what you have for us today. We thank you for your son and in Jesus name we pray. Amen. So let's look at this psalm. I'll reread verses 1 to 6. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in from behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Psalm 139 is one of the many psalms attributed to David. The heading says that this was for the director of music. So this psalm was likely used for public worship or special music at a religious gathering. Christ himself may have prayed this psalm growing up as a Jewish boy in first century Palestine. David wrote this for Israelite worship. Jesus sang or prayed it. Jesus the Christ, who is the new David, the new Israel, could very well have prayed this. Lord, you know me. You know everything about me. You know more about me than I know about myself. Everything I do or say, you know it before I do. And Christ, the eternal Son and the eternal Word, is the eternal speaker of this psalm that celebrates the Father's intimate knowledge and presence. As one of the church fathers, Augustine, says, The psalms were sung long before the Lord was born of Mary, but not before he was Lord. This psalm can be split into four six-verse stanzas. Just like on your outline, verses 1 to 6, where David says that Yahweh knows him. Verses 7 to 12, where David says that Yahweh is with him. Verses 13 to 18, where David says that Yahweh created him. And then verses 19 to 24, where David pleads with Yahweh to destroy the wicked and asks Yahweh to search him and lead him. Here in verses 1 to 6, David says that God knows him, his actions, his motives, his words. God knows David and Israel and Christ and us. He knows everything there is to know. But this is not a God who sees from up on his throne in heaven and looking down in judgment or something. This is a God who knows us, who knows us intimately, who cares enough to search us out right down to our motives. God knows all things, but God knows you and God knows me. 
More than that, David and Christ and us, but David, affirms in this psalm that God squeezes him in from behind and before and lays his hand on him. Hear what all that says so far. Right off the bat, in the first six verses, David suggests that the whole Nietzschean worldview is wrong. Remember, the Nietzschean worldview is that God is dead, or at least doesn't care, and that I can and should do and be whatever I want. I should assert myself. One implication of that is that no one can fully know me. I can be whatever I want. So I may choose to be one thing in one moment and something completely different in another moment. The world is my oyster. It's a strange phrase. Look it up and Google it sometime. It's interesting. No one can fully know me because I can choose to do anything I want in any given moment. I have an infinite number of possibilities in front of me and no one, not even me, knows which one I will choose. Life is possibility, so I am unknowable. One example of this from my life, when I was in high school, I refused to be like everyone else. I didn't want to be in a box or labeled. So when all of my friends were listening to Nirvana and Pearl Jam, grunge and alternative music, I listened strictly to oldies. Beatles, Beach Boys, Tommy Rowe, The Supremes. It's good music, right? Right? But I can't honestly say that I sang Sweet Pea in the Halls of Fairmont Junior High because it was such great music. I did it because it was so unexpected. It made me feel unpredictable. It was a way of asserting that I can make my own life. I can be whoever I want to be. But David says that Yahweh fully knows him better than David knows himself. Also, Yahweh is real and cares about David and about you and me. More than that, verse 5 suggests that Yahweh actually limits us. He hems us in, places his hand on us. The world is not a place of infinite possibility. We are finite, limited creatures. I can't be whoever I want to be. God already knows me. He already knows what decisions I will make, and those decisions are limited by his hand on me and his hemming me in. David was limited and finite. Israel was limited and finite. Even Jesus was limited and finite. We are known and limited and finite creatures. I had a professor at school tell me, um, that I should be the kind of student that God had made me and called me to be. If I was an, a student that was supposed to get an A in a particular class, then I should be a student that gets an A in that particular class. But if I was a student, say, made by God and called by God to be the kind of student that gets a C in that particular class, then I should get a C in that particular class. If an A student gets a C then that probably means they weren't focused on school enough, right? They were slacking off, doing something they shouldn't have been doing. If a student who's supposed to get an A, supposed to get a C in a particular class, gets an A, that probably means they also weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. Do you get that? God called you to do something particular. He didn't call you to do everything. You are a limited, finite creature. I like to tell that to my students in classes, um, except that we're pass-fail, so I don't give A's or C's. So. 
But we are limited, finite creatures. Hold on to that idea. We'll come back to it later. For now, let's look at the second section, verses 7 to 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Where can I go to escape you? David celebrates the idea that he can't ever get away from Yahweh. Anywhere that David could go to run away, Yahweh would always be there. Yes, Yahweh is everywhere. But more than that, Yahweh is always here with you and me. Jonah found that out, right? When he tried to run from God's call. God knew where he was, where he was going, and how to get him back to where he was supposed to be. He couldn't fool God or run from him. Even in his sin, in his darkness, he couldn't hide from God. This image of flying on the wings of the dawn in verse 9, I think is an interesting image. It seems to be something like a reference to something like the Icarus story in ancient Greece, if you remember that story, where Icarus makes wax wings and tries to fly to the sun but he flies too high, too close to the sun, and the wax melts, and he falls into the sea. The wings of the dawn seem to refer to an ancient Ugaritic myth of a minor god who tries to overcome all of the other gods. The idea seems to be that even if David tried to be like God and do whatever he wanted to do, Yahweh would still be there with his hand on David. In other words, We may think we can be whatever we want to be, that we are totally free and all things are possible to us, but Yahweh is still there. The prodigal son discovered that the darkness was not dark to Yahweh. The worst that we can do to one another and to ourselves does not scare God or make him want to reject us. He already knows. He's already there. And he's waiting with open arms to welcome us home. Going back to Jonah for a second, the world that Jonah knew was huge. He thought he could run away from God by going to Tarshish. The world that we know is much smaller than that. We can fly around the world. We can see pictures of anywhere in the world that we want to with Google Image and other things. But now we have this constantly expanding worldwide web. And lots and lots of us have online personalities and can hide ourselves online, right? Also, sometimes we do things online that we think no one else can see. But Yahweh is not surprised. Nothing is hidden from him. He knew about the ins and outs of Facebook before there was a computer. He was doing instant communications well before you had a smartphone. And his mobile plan is better than yours. (laughs) Here's the deal. You can't hide from God. He's not looking for opportunities to judge you and punish you, but know that he is with you. He wants you to invite him into those moments you think are hidden from him. 
He's already there. And he's waiting for you to allow him to walk those moments with you. Your darkness is not too dark for God. Let's keep going on. Verses 13 to 18. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Yahweh knows David. He is with David. And Yahweh created David. This, I think, is a really significant part of this psalm because David has made the claim that God knows and is with him, but that may or may not be a good thing. It's scary to be known and to have someone always with you. But here, David is really celebrating Yahweh's creation. Your works are wonderful, he says. I may be finite and limited, but that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. You created me well. Just look at everything you've created. It's all wonderful. Our English translations of verse 14 are great little statements. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The Hebrew is actually extremely difficult to translate. So that may be the best we can do putting into English, but it doesn't really capture the Hebrew. The literal Hebrew is more like I will praise you because fearful things, I am set apart, wonderful are your works. I don't know what that means. One scholar, and I think this is probably helpful, translates the difficult part as, I am fearfully extraordinary, which captures a good deal of what I think David is saying. On the one hand, he's saying, all your works are wonderful, God. Everything that you have created is wonderful. And as a piece of your creation, I know that I am wonderful. On the other hand, he also seems to be saying, I am set apart from your creation. I am not just an, a normal, wonderful piece of your creation. I am an extraordinary piece of your creation. You made me special. Like Adam and Eve before him, and like the rest of humanity, David bears the image of the Creator, bears the care and special attention of the Creator, and his end and purpose is found in the Creator. Let me repeat those. David bears the image of the Creator. He bears the care and special attention of the Creator. And his end and purpose is found in the Creator. Remember earlier I said, hold on to the idea that we are known and limited and finite? Well now, let's bring that back out. We are known and limited and finite, but that's a good thing. We are known and limited and finite, but we are also extraordinary. We are wonderful, special creations of God Almighty. He took special care when he created you. You bear his image and represent him to the world in some unique way. 
You were made for life in and with him. So those pictures we took at the beginning of the service, those people that you met and shook hands with, each of them is an extraordinary member of God's creation. Each of them is set apart, stamped with God's image, made with his special attention and made for him. Value those people. Remember them this week. Look at those pictures this week and pray for them. God remembers those people. God values them. As many of you know, my wife and I, Grace, had a baby this summer. Adelia Amy was born in June. We had nine months to come up with a name, and we were struggling with girls' names. We had a boy's name, but Grace had her list of girls' names, I had my list of girls' names, and there was no crossover. Um, eventually a friend told Grace not to worry about it, that God would name this baby. And that was comforting to us because we sure didn't know how we were going to name this baby. When we saw this name Adaliah in a book, we kind of liked it. And then I did some research on the Hebrew about what it could mean. It's a combination of Hebrew words, one from a word meaning refuge that's associated with um, the cave of Adullam where David runs from Saul uh, when he hides out. Adal is from Adulam, uh, meaning fortress or refuge. The, the last half of the name means Yahweh. So we take the name to mean Yahweh is refuge. When Adaliah introduced herself, she was a girl, and we had this name, and we believe that God named her. We didn't know when we came up with the name how important the name would become to us. Grace started bleeding immediately after the birth. The bleeding wouldn't stop. She ended up in emergency surgery and lost almost half of her blood. She has now recovered and her blood numbers are back to normal, but we were scared there for a while. But we remember that Yahweh is our refuge. And every time we say our daughter's name, we will remember that he protected grace and he is a refuge in times of trouble. You see, even our names can have meaning and purpose. God didn't create Adaliah just for her name. He knit her together carefully and intentionally to bear his image in the world and to find her life in him. I want to make a parallel point here. Many of you know about Adaliah. What many of you may not know is that we had been trying to have a baby for a year and a half before Adaliah was conceived and we had a miscarriage in there and that was painful to us because God had begun, had begun to knit this person together with special care and attention but now he or she is gone. Losing a person is always hard. Whether you have met this little creation or not, just because we never met our little angel and just because he or she never reached 20 or 30 or 40 weeks and just because he or she never took a breath does not mean that God did not create our little one in his image with love and care and to find life in him. As Psalm 139 suggests, God is intimately involved in the processes of creation right from the beginning. And he cares about every creature that he has made. In fact, God the Son, Jesus Christ, came down and was an embryo and a fetus before he was born in Bethlehem. God cares about embryos and fetuses. Jesus was a fetus, and even a fetus can be saved and redeemed by God. So all of you who have experienced pregnancy loss 
and especially you mothers, I want you to hear that God loves your unborn children just as I know you do. And just as many of you will never, um, many, many of you will never forget your unborn children, even though you never got to introduce them to your parents or put them to bed or feed them or watch them go off to school or grow up. And even though you don't really know how to talk about them, because most of us don't know they exist, and when people ask you how many kids you have, or why you never had kids, you don't know how to answer them. God knows. He feels all that too. He created you too, and He knows you, and He knows all about the loss of the child. Just a final note on this point. I suspect that there are many of you women who have experienced pregnancy loss and many of you who have never had the chance to talk with someone about it. My hope and prayer for you is that you will find someone who can listen well and understand. And in the meantime, know that the Lord knows and understands. God loves the unborn. He also loves the born. War, torture, enhanced interrogation, hatred, self-hatred, abuse, these are some of the ways that we mistreat what God has carefully and intimately made in His image and for His purposes. Humans are not God, but every human has dignity made in the image of God. As Christians, let me make this point very clearly. As Christians, it is not good enough to oppose abortion if you are for killing and torturing those that God has made. And it is not good enough to oppose war and torture if you don't care for the unborn. We live in a culture of death. And this psalm reminds us that our God is a God who creates, who knows, and who loves life. We are his hands and feet. Let's maintain the dignity of life in our words, actions, attitudes, our politics, and the ways that we treat one another. So in the first three parts of this psalm, David praises Yahweh because he knows David, because he is with David, and because he created David Yahweh cares intimately for us. And God is God. We are not. We are limited, finite, and loved. The fourth and final piece of Psalm 139 doesn't seem to fit. Let's look at it together. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. 
See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So what is the connection between Yahweh's intimate knowledge and care and David's hatred of the wicked? How does this fit as an ending? Let's start by looking at what it says. In verses 19 to 22, David opposes himself to the wicked, says he hates the wicked, and wishes that Yahweh would just do away with them. He describes the wicked. In verse 19, he says that they are violent or bloodthirsty. They hurt others for their own benefit. Verse 20 says that they rebel. They set themselves in opposition and as rivals to God. They act deceitfully and they lie. They act and speak in ways that spin and manipulate reality for their own benefit. And verse 21 says, They hate God and oppose Him. They either hate that God exists and wish He were dead, or they live as though they are gods and that God doesn't exist. To summarize, the wicked are those who set themselves up in opposition to God. I think that David is saying that the wicked are those who live and say like there is no God, speak and say like there is no God, and set themselves up as gods. The wicked are those who think they can do whatever they want to do and be whoever they want to be. God doesn't exist, or if he does, then he doesn't care, so I'm going to do what I want to do. The world is my oyster. Life is full of infinite possibility. Those are the words of the wicked. Those are the ones who oppose God and against whom David sets himself. Remember Nietzsche and the language of self-actualization? The wicked aren't just those who do wicked things like steal and kill and all that stuff. The wicked are those who set themselves up as opposed to God. They might do all the right things. One note about this. David does not say, Okay, God, I see the wicked and I'm going to take them out for you. Yeah, no more wicked people. David says that he wishes that God would get rid of the wicked. Obviously, because David has wicked people to look at, God has not chosen to do that. God's response, in fact, will be to send his son to die on behalf of the wicked. David does not take it on himself to kill the wicked, and actually neither does God. It is not our job to rid the world of wickedness. When God decides to do that in his timing, it will be his job. Now our job is to give grace and truth to wickedness and to love the wicked. And moving on to the last couple verses. Search me, Lord. David basically acknowledges here that the wicked, those who live as though God doesn't exist, could very easily include him. He could very easily be a part of the wicked. David, we know, had times in his life and areas of his life and actions that he took when he forgot or refused to acknowledge God. So he says, see if there is anything in me, Yahweh. I know there are things that I'm unwilling to acknowledge. But you are Lord over those things too. Search those out. Change me. But for God's grace and constant searching... 
David could end up just like the wicked whom he hates. So he relies on God's grace and asks for Yahweh to search him out. The same is true of the church, the body of Christ. The body of Christ relies on Christ, on the grace that God gives us through his son. And there will always, 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 can I add one more, always, be mistakes, sinners, things that will make you uncomfortable. If the church is not full of sinners, then the church is not doing its job. The church needs humility and it needs God's leading through his spirit. And if it is doing what it's supposed to do, there will be mistakes, sinners, and you will be uncomfortable. I want to make that point because there are still people out there looking for the perfect church or the perfect group to worship and fellowship with. If you find that perfect group, look out. Because if they're really following God's call, they will very soon attract sinners, mistakes, and people who will make you uncomfortable. And if they are not really following God's call, they will very soon separate themselves from other believers and from the body of Christ. And they're more likely to end up in a cult. We are called to be united, and that means united with people who make mistakes and blow it. A couple of final things about these last couple of verses. David has already said that God knows everything about him. Why does he need to ask God to search him out? I think this is because David wants to put himself in a posture of humility before God. God, I know you know, but I'm going to ask anyway because it's good for me to ask. It reminds me that I need your grace and it's good for me to practice humility. If we get out of the habit of being in a posture of humility before God, then it doesn't take long for us to not be humble. David asks because he needs to ask, even though he has already shown that he is humble. It's like anything else that needs practice. Kellen Moore threw the ball awfully well last night. So why does he still practice throwing the football? Well, because if he stopped practicing throwing the football, he wouldn't be good at it anymore, right? Same with us. We need to practice our position of humility before God so that we can actually be humble. How do the wicked become the wicked? Subtle things, subtle practices that undermined their humility and they got out of practice of being humble before God. Pretty soon they lost their humility and then they are setting themselves up as rivals to God thinking they can be anything they want to be. So David acknowledges his weakness. He acknowledges his reliance on God's grace. And he ends with this line about the everlasting way. Lead me in your everlasting way, he prays. The everlasting way is a reference to God's ways of living, as represented in Torah, in the wisdom, in living well. David says, Lead me in your ways of living, Prevent me from becoming wicked, from setting myself up in opposition to you, Lord. This requires Yahweh's leading, because humility and submission to Yahweh's leading is the thing that keeps a person from becoming wicked. This everlasting way leads us to God. It is what he carefully and intimately created us to do. 
so that we can find life in him. He made you for a purpose and the everlasting way helps you find your purpose in him. Remember, you are an extraordinary creation made for God and the everlasting way helps point us to him. So to recap, Yahweh knows you. He is with you. He created you. And David gives us an example of humility before God when he asks God to search him and to lead him. So how does Psalm 139 speak to us in our language and culture of self-actualization where we say anything is possible, the sky is the limit, where we tell our kids and high school graduates that you can be anything you want to be and do anything you want to do. How can Psalm 139 change us to be more like Christ? Well, our culture assumes that there is no God, says that you and I can be gods, and that it is good for us to do what we want to do. We are unbound, free, unknowable, infinite. Psalm 139 says something significant. In the face of that, in this psalm, David says that God is real, that he cares about you and me intimately, that he knows limits and gives us boundaries so that we can be and do exactly what we were created to do. I am created. I am not the creator. We are not gods, but we are extraordinary creations made in God's, God's image to find life in him. We are not gods, but in him and following his everlasting way, we are capable of and called to miraculous acts of love. We are finite, bounded, limited, created, but for our good and for God's glory. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. You know us. You are with us. You created us, and you created us good. Father, we thank you for that, and we praise you. Father, would you lead us in your everlasting way? Continue to make us humble and reliant on you and on your grace. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you demonstrated that when you sent your Son we thank you for Jesus and his life and death and resurrection and the resurrection life that we have in him. We realize that we are wonderfully made. We are extraordinary because you created us that way. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.